The reason I'm on this podcast is because of the conflict in the Middle East. The iceberg below the surface of anti-Semitism in the United States has been profoundly rattling for me. Welcome back to Ami's House. Ami's House, very special edition with a very, very special guest. He is uh, the host of the Pivot podcast with Kara Swisher and the Prof G uh, podcast author, speaker, Professor Scott Galloway, welcome to my house. Uh, I mean, it's good to be with you, especially as I feel like I'm on Catch a Rising Star. You are everywhere. To to resist is futile. You are literally, I, there's no escaping you right now. You're, you're, you're literally ubiquitous. My God, you sound like my wife. That's there unbelievable. You go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, yeah, that is the age we are in, uh, the power of social media. I know you've had some words about TikTok and stuff, but I have to give credit where it's due. In an age where we can all find our little audiences, I've been using the tools at hand to uh, to do so. So, mm-hmm. uh, half musician, half comedian. Uh, you know, music. I came from the music world. Comedy's always been like a a second child to me that I was neglecting over the years. So, mm-hmm. thankfully, through social media, I've been able to uh, get my voice out there. So, I appreciate well, it's that. working. And, and thank keep you for on, the kind on. words. Thank you for the kind words and the shout outs. Uh, I, I do appreciate it. You're um, very welcome. And, you know, I did remember on Pivot, you, you, you referred to me as a handsome kid, which was very flattering. <laughs> I appreciated that. But the truth is, I'm not a kid. I'm thir- Michael and I are both 37. And my question yeah, to you is... That's you know, relative. That feels pretty kid-like at my age. <laughs> well, Michael and I are both... We're mar- So look, we're married. I have four yeah. kids. Michael's got two, a third on you the way. You have four kids? Yeah. How yeah, old? Yeah. Uh, 10, 8, 6, and 3. Oh, dude, yeah. you're in Vietnam. That is, <laughs> wow. I am on the front lines. I'm on the yeah. front lines. It's a terrible battle. It's a terrible <laughs> battle. Um, but my question to you is, so like, yeah. are we okay? Is there anything else we need to do, you know, as young men? As young men? <laughs> are we the no, problem? Everything's fine. Or are we- everything's fine. Oh. And seen. Yeah. Oh. And yeah. seen. Good, good. Because I know, you know, you give pretty firm and necessary advice out there. So I just want to make sure Michael and I, in our position... Well, can I ask you a series of questions? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, we, we both live in our parents' house. <laughs> That's the other thing. They're very do helpful. You, do you feel like you have and are developing deep and meaningful relationships? Oh, absolutely. Especially, yeah. uh, I think, you know, a lot, of, especially when it comes to parenting, There, I think in the culture out there, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, parenting gets a bad rap. Everyone talks about children being this sacrifice. They get framed mm-hmm. in this negative light as being a drag on your ambitions. And I think that's because, you know, misery loves company. And a mm-hmm. lot of people, they don't vent about the good stuff. They don't vent about the mm-hmm. stuff. When when people who don't have kids are with people who do have kids, mm-hmm. you're inherently, you know, existing in conflict because you're with somebody who wants to hang out with you, but they have kids there with them. So their attention is split. When you leave the presence of a parent who has children, then they can give their attention, and there's a lot of bliss and profound, meaningful fulfillment there that I don't think gets talked about enough. So uh, do you feel like you are emotionally, psychologically, and physically in pretty good shape? <sighs> Michael? Physically? Physically? <laughs> uh, emotionally, psychologically, pretty good. The dad mm-hmm. bod is strong. There's a lot of mm-hmm. wacky mac and kids, uh, macaroni and cheese and pizza. It's all around me now. I eat worse now get, than in my early twenties. Do you get good sleep? Do uh, you... you more than not enough, not as much as I should, but I, you know, it comes Decent. in waves. But I think this, I think in life, as far as stress goes, there's good stress and bad stress, but it's yep. stress nonetheless. 
So the stress right. that I do have is is good stress. M- yeah, know? motivating, getting shit done. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you? How do you feel about your nutrition? Terrible, just terrible. terrible. I'm just scarfing down whatever's <laughs> there. I'm. I find myself eating while standing. You know, by like mm-hmm. a pantry or a closet. I see him eating a lot of microwavable sausages. <laughs> Well, that's something you can fix pretty easily. You yeah. May, you know, it, that that should be something. Do you drink a lot of alcohol or consume a lot of THC? No, no. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm all clean on that. You're all clean on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, what about your exercise? Um, I did jumping jacks like a month ago, one day. And that's, and then, and then you know, all, all easier said than done. The habit forming for that, you know, I, uh, I have to get right. on it because I've heard you talk about too in your younger years, like build the strongest core and everything foundation. Well, you can. I, I look at you, you, I mean, I can just look at you. You look like a wrestler or a mm. former wrestler, or hockey player. You look like you have some muscle mass at your age. Yeah. With, I'm stocky. I'm wearing a black sweatshirt on purpose. You know, it conceals. But all with the... a minimum, with a modest amount of effort at your yeah. age, yeah. you're still producing a lot of testosterone. You look pretty strong. You look okay. athletic. With a, mod- amount, a modest amount of effort, you can build a base of muscle and agility that will, you know, really serve you well when you're my age. Mm-hmm. Um, you seem very uncomfortable with me asking these questions, so I'm going to continue. No. <laughs> you got to take care. You got to fix your own oxygen mask before you can help other people put their masks on. Mm. Uh, do you feel like you're a good protector of your kids? Do you feel like you're you're protecting your wife and your kids from emotional harm? Do you feel like you help create a secure, loving environment for them? Yes, yes, I think I think so. Good I question. So, yeah. That's important. I, I I think to be you know yeah I got, I'm good at listening to them. Good at trying to hear them out. Obviously, I dad rage. Everybody dad rage. A few yeah. like light slams, but always on soft surfaces. Like if, if I need to like, you know, if it's a couch or whatever. And if there's somebody around, like I have to, you know, if somebody walks by in the midst of a dad rage fit, I'll be like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Do you feel like, I'll go on to my next one. Do you feel like you're a good provider? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, always a work in progress, doing what I can, doing my best. This is sort of that that point in your life where it's, you know, like, you mentioned also you can have everything, but not all at once. Yeah. You know, so the hardest part is making those choices where, you know, you're really, I think in our, at our age in our thirties, you're, you're pulled in every direction at the 100%. same time. The kids need the most attention now. Yeah. Jordan Peterson has talked about that. All You know, yeah. between zero and four, that's all you get. And then they'll yeah. despise you. You know, that's it. So I'm like, <laughs> oh man. So that's I do good. feel like I'm very, you know, one of the benefits of being in the artist world and having a little bit yeah. of flexibility and freelance schedule is, yeah. The ability to be there for the bath times and the bath times and the dinners, but yeah. the instability oh, and the chaos of that is, is the other Soak thing. It up. So, what know? about the money part, though? Because we talked about we talked about here about how getting into stand up was a big financial risk. Yeah, no, it's incredibly stressful, and like you're constantly, you know, I think yeah, there's something really nice about your kids being able to see you pursue your passions as just mm-hmm. an observational thing. Because I do think mm-hmm. kids learn the most by just watching yeah, they, their parents they model be. You. 100%. Fully formed people. Yeah, that's what you do. So I, you say, you say, yeah. Yeah. So I hope to, I hope to be an inspiration in that way to them and impart those lessons. But it just gets, you know, the instability of an artist and freelance life can be, can, can, you know, when it rains, it pours, and in, in for good and for bad. So that's that's challenging. But so when you think of masculinity, yeah. it's generally mm-hmm. it, masculinity is a man-made construct or societal mm-hmm. construct construct but it's usually attributes and behaviors that make people born as men feel good about themselves in the world and it kind of i think it kind of comes down to three things Mm -hmm. um protector and it sounds like you're doing an okay job of protecting yourself you could do a little bit better it sounds like you do a good job protecting your family it sounds like you're a decent provider in the age in the the decade of the 30s are -hmm. just unless you're smart enough to be born rich they're just ridiculously fucking stressful because Mm -hmm. it's a competitive economy having four kids has to be crazy expensive so Mm -hmm. 
if you're stressed every day, you're where you should be. Um, that, that's as hard. Yeah. And then finally, the third one, you've got that box check, and that is Procreator. And that mm. is find someone who you're interested in, express interest, and procreate and be a responsible father. And it sounds like you're doing that. So I would say on the three legs of masculinity, the three legs of the stool of masculinity, you're, you're doing really well. <laughs> Michael hasn't That's seen strong his family like in months. Michael strong hasn't seen like his family goal. in months. Strong like I'm going to flip this whole table over just from that. Thanks go. for the pep talk, Scott. Um, moving on to some serious topics. Uh, mm-hmm. You speak a lot about meaning and pursuing mm-hmm. meaning and pursuing fulfillment and mm-hmm. the dangers of not doing so, particularly with young men and young people mm-hmm. in general. When they don't do that, um, they will find other outlets and it can mm-hmm. be very dangerous. And I'm seeing now, as we're looking in the situation in Israel that's very close to Michael and I, we're both modern mm-hmm. Orthodox Jews from our community. We have a lot of family there, and that's been front of mind for us for the last six weeks. You are seeing young people, a specific moral confusion and depravity amongst young people, going out, ripping down signs and, and mm-hmm. posters of kidnapped children. Do you see a link between a sort of nihilism and a lack of fulfillment and purpose in these young people and the need to fill it with something? And if they don't find it with something positive, it will inevitably find something negative. So there's a lot here because the reason I'm on this podcast is because of the conflict in the Middle East. And that is, um, I don't know how to say this without sounding arrogant. I get a lot of requests to be on podcasts. Mm-hmm. Your podcast is new and it's not of the size or the stature of a podcast I usually agree to do to be blunt. But I have been really moved, and um, I think what I think the courage and the candor you're showing around Israel is really. Um, I, I, I just respect you, and I respect the risks you're taking, and I respect how it's spoken, and courageous you're being on the issue. And for me, it sounds like Judaism plays a bigger role in your life than it does for me. I I am not a religious person. I'm an atheist. And I've never felt much of a connection to Israel, and I feel like this is finally time for me to actually shift my part-time Jewish status to to full-time because I feel like I've done almost nothing for Israel and my and mm-hmm. and Judaism, and I I'm just very moved by um, the leadership you're showing around the issue because Rabbi, we rea- got him, we got Scott. Don't worry, we got him. Well, <laughs> the, the reality is, and I've I've gotten some of this, but I'm already financially secure. Mm-hmm. There's a risk to saying these things in an environment yeah. where. The majority of young people and many people on the left are conflating the struggles of the Gazans, which are real, the struggle of the Palestinians, which is real, with the civil rights movement. And I think there's a lot of knee-jerk reactions that are uninformed and uneducated about what is actually going on there. They use words like apartheid, and yet they don't want to look at the fact that every Arab nation used to have tens or hundreds of thousands of Jews and now has none. Mm-hmm. They want to talk about genocide. And they don't understand the word. If Israel wanted to commit genocide against the people of Palestine, they could do it very easily. And yet it's a stated mission as the only amendment, the only constitution of Hamas is the extermination of the Jewish people. And I I feel as if the lack of education, the lack of history among our youth on campus, and then the willingness uh, or the reservoir or the iceberg below the surface of anti-Semitism in the United States has been profoundly rattling for me, whether it's the way this conflict is presented in the media, whether it's, you know, when they fire rockets at Israel, it's war. When we fire rockets, it's a war crime. The even use of the word war crime, where the IDF has war crimes. If you're an Israeli soldier and you slaughter someone in front of their parents, you are going to jail. That is considered just standard practice across Hamas. 
And it's, it's incredibly upsetting and disturbing to me to see what I feel are well-intentioned but totally misinformed people on the far left, and I consider myself a progressive, and people on campus uh, 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 just, you know, I, my notion is I want to say you should invite someone from us to, to one of your rallies and start off with a discussion around your preferred pronouns. Like what exactly do you think Hamas – if Israel – I like the litmus test that Sam Harris applies, and he's kind of a role model of mine, and that is look at what would happen if both parties were in charge. If, if Israel were in charge uh, of the U.S. government and our military, the next day you wouldn't know any different. Civil rights, jury trials, mm-hmm. scientific research, uh, no child labor, um, courts, um, women's rights. If Hamas got control of our Congress and our military – they would start killing people by the millions, Christians, gay people. And it just strikes me as just so incredibly, the definition of stupid is you do things that are harmful to others and harmful to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that people who are supporting Hamas on the far left, especially, I understand Palestinians and the empathy they feel for their family and what I believe has been a series of terrible decisions by the current, current administration in Israel. I think Netanyahu has been terrible for Israel and Jews. I understand their pain and their empathy, but the folks here on the far left on campuses and in Congress who, to me, they're just being stupid. They don't realize that these people, if they had the chance, would likely unceremoniously exterminate them. There's no Mm -hmm. empathy for gay people or trans people or Christians across Hamas. So I find it incredibly disappointing. Now, back to your issue around purpose, young men – and young people in America, but specifically young men, are really in sort of a mental health crisis that has mm-hmm. exploded for a variety of reasons, uh, concierge parenting, single-parent households, social media. But in Israel, there's actually some of the lowest levels of teen depression and depression mm-hmm. among young adults. Interesting. And then the question is, well, wh- how, what are they doing such that, that young people seem to be less prone to these terrible episodes of suicidal ideation or feeling useless or worthless? And I think a big part of it is um, national service and that they feel a connection to their country. And I would like to see national service in America. I think America is a wonderful nation. and I think young people don't realize how fortunate they are. Mm-hmm. But I think the three-year service uh, for men and women, and it, it doesn't have to be military, as you know. It can be in social services or in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. I think it gives young people a sense of connection to each other, gives them an opportunity to meet mentors, mates, business partners from different, different backgrounds. I mean, we were talking about apartheid. You know, there's two point, you know, what is it, 1.2 million or 2.1 million Arabs in Israel, members of the Knesset, own businesses on the Supreme Court. And there's a connective tissue in Israel that gives people a sense of purpose that I think is not only lacking in most nations, but really lacking in the United States. And the result is younger people have a greater sense of purpose there. And I think there's a lot we can learn um, from Israel. And the place I start and something I've been thinking about and fighting for, and it's easy to say now that I've aged out of that that demographic, is I think America would really benefit from um, um, national service. I think it's a wonderful country, and I think young people don't appreciate how much sacrifice has been um, demonstrated and levied by other people for their benefit. Jen, do you mean like culturally encouraged or mandated by as a draft the way Israel does it? Because it would be harder. It's apples and oranges because Israel is smaller, like you said, and has a little bit more of a a mission-driven uh, uh, culture in terms of protecting itself in a neighborhood that's very hostile. I just wonder 
what kind of pushback. But I, I understand that the effects of having one have this positive effect on young people by giving them a sense of orientation, a sense of community with their with their country and feeling a sense of belonging. And I'd like to see it. I'd, yeah. I mean, theoretically, magic wand, yeah. mandatory. I don't think you mm -hmm. can do that at this point. The fact that right. we don't have mandatory military service, how are you going to have ma mandatory national service? Mm -hmm. And I... I just don't. I don't think a younger generation is going to let boomers like myself, or I'm actually <laughs> Gen X, decide yeah. they should go spend three years helping the nation. Yeah. But I think a massive investment that makes it really um, enticing, intoxicating, pay for your college, whatever it might be, um, just huge opportunities, a rite of passage. Um, sure. I, so I, I I'd like to see mandatory. I don't know if that's pragmatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in in, in terms of um, aside from on the on the national level. I don't know. It's something seems to be really wrong on the local level for these students who I don't know if it's, it, it, you know, especially on college campuses we were talking about before. Especially Ivy League campuses. Yeah, like, you, you know, it's one thing for somebody what, dwelling in their basement that has no personal connections to anything and has no aspirations and therefore they become bitter and resentful and dangerous. But we're seeing this in the Ivory Towers and the Ivy League schools. There's something going on with the ideas here that are flipping people's sense of, forget sophisticated morality, basic human decency. You know, and that has been so inexplicable to me because there are some people, like you said, it's revealed a certain ideological anti-Semitism that they're holding Israel to this mm -hmm. impossible standard. And they rejected this idea or are uncomfortable with this idea of the Jewish people having a state or having self-determination. There's a willful distortion of history. And then obviously in these streets and protests, this completely ill-informed a mass of young people who I think are searching for some kind of meaning. They don't. They can't find the Jordan River on a map, but they're shouting from the river to the sea. And there's just a part of me that it's so con it, it's inexplicable. Other than I don't know, there's something wrong psychologically. I don't. I can't diagnose them in mass. But I, do you have anything else as far as like what 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 comes to mind in thinking what what's going on with these young people? And is it I willful? Few, yeah. I think it's a few things. One is just a natural, healthy reaction from young people to. A zig when their parents are zagging, whether mm -hmm. it's listening to rock and roll or being against the Vietnam War, there has always been a generational divide. And it's healthy. Young people want to push the boundaries. They want to rebel. And that's important. It's key to innovation. It's key to making the separation from the family unit uh, mm -hmm. easier, right? You start becoming an asshole, and it gets easier mm -hmm. for you to leave, leave, leave home. Right. And uh, people in my generation, 70% support Israel. And I think a younger generation who isn't as doing as well as my generation looks at our viewpoints, political, and says, I naturally have an inclination to go the other way, too. Um, I think, and this is wonderful, the U.S. is now people under the age of 18, whites are in the minority. And they're 51% of Harvard's freshman class is non-whites. I think they've been brought up uh, with a, a strong sense of history of the injustices levied against non-whites. I also think, unfortunately, there's a certain oppressor and oppressed philosophy that is pushed on them at a very early age where they go on the hunt for what I'd call fake racists or fake sexists. And the reductive, easy way to find an oppressor is basically how white and how wealthy are you. Mm -hmm. And there's no one whiter or wealthier than Israel. The economy, the average household income. And then also, I think that the and I don't know how you feel about this, I think uh, Netanyahu and far-right extremists in the Israeli government have not done us any favors. I think that their approach around settlements, I think their aggressive policies, I think Netanyahu has been somewhat diabolical, including funneling money to Hamas, such that the Palestinian Authority didn't ever have a chance at a two-state solution. I just, you know, they haven't handled it well. They set us 
nothing justifies what happened, mm-hmm. um, but they haven't done us any favors. Israel has gone in the last 40 years from being, you know, 1967 in Munich, we were the good guys, yeah. to now we're seen globally as the bad guys. And I think that I don't see a future of peace in the Middle East with one without U.S. intervention and U.S. support there. I think Obama's decision to exit the Middle East was a disaster. Mm-hmm. I think we're needed there. And two, I don't think it can, uh, we can get to the next thing without, first and foremost, you, you, we can't get there with Hamas. There yeah. should be one retirement plan for Hamas. Any organization that's committed to the extermination of another people. Uh, Deal breaker. You, yeah, it's kind of, all right, that's it. You know? What I'll say on the Netanyahu front is, you know, I, I'm not, I don't have enough authority really on his domestic policy or internal Israeli politics to fully defend one position or another. I tend to lean a little right of center in general, mm-hmm. but... Netanyahu speaks English, you know? And I think that that, as an American, I'm, I'm half kidding, but I wanted to ask you... It's sh- my ear, I don't understand. <laughs> I'm, jo- I'm half joking, but one thing I wanted to shift into is... Um, what, one thing I will push back on a little bit is yep. just that while, while you, one could argue whether his policies were more inflammatory or did a little more harm, more harm than good, they're not the fundamental problem, as you illustrated mm-hmm. before. The fundamental problem is a commitment by entities and regimes in the Middle East to see Israel not exist. There 100%. hasn't been enough of a commitment to create a free, prosperous Palestinian state. Rather, the non-existence of a Jewish state has always been the stated goal and priority every single time Israel, uh, among across uh, prime ministers of different political persuasions, there's been so many attempts to do this, and there's been so many opportunities that have been missed on the Palestinian side. So whether you know, uh, expanding settlements, you know, inflames or creates more hostility or not. I don't really think that I think that's more of a marginal issue than the fundamental. We can get into the weeds on what that policy should be. But again, like you said, we're, we're, we're dealing with Hamas and Gaza. And frankly, if, if, if the Palestine, if they took over in the West Bank, too, I mean, a lot of the entities we're dealing with still fail to recognize Israel as a sovereign Jewish state and accept that, because if they did 100%. accept that, it seems everybody. that they would have a state and we would and, and Israel has always welcomed and accepted that. Um, and 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 the two the two state solution has been offered, mm-hmm. I think, four mm-hmm. times now. And mm-hmm. and each time the offer gets worse and worse, and yet they haven't figured out that at some point, mm-hmm. right, they should take the deal. And there, there are and different it seems levels further away than ever before at this there point. Are different, obviously, there are different yeah. levels of wrong that become diabolical that become just pure evil. Right, right. And uh, and an organization that is committed to the eradication of a people, uh, full stop. Yeah. is 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 evil uh, and it, I'm not conflating the two as being mm-hmm. I, I don't want to make a false equivalence here sure, however sure, sure. having said that mm-hmm. the ultimate iron dome for Israel is to continue to be an outpost an outpost for Western values mm-hmm. and those values that we hold true um, are the reason why we give three and a half billion dollars a year the reason why a lot of powerful people uh, decide to vote for representatives that will send military aid and basically send two carrier strike forces over there to sit off the coast mm-hmm. and say to Iran, you know, be careful what you do, because if you do, you're going to have the firepower of the entire EU rain down on you. And I think that the America's support of Israel has been critical in terms of ring fencing this as a regional conflict and ensuring that other Arab states don't decide to start a multi-front war. Now, having said mm-hmm. that, in order to maintain that support, I think Israel needs to continue to be an outpost of Western values. And I would argue mm-hmm. Net, Net, Netanyahu, whether it's disassembling what is effectively the Supreme Court there to avoid his own corruption charges and what I feel are some uh, tolerance of religious extremism within Israel, uh, has not served us well. When I say mm-hmm. us, I mean Jews and people who support Israel. 
It well, Scott, no I disagree way. with the premise of your question entirely. You're <laughs> summoning my man Netanyahu, and I disagree. This is an example of a robust democracy. There you go. Um, but on the subject, on the subject of, I think he went to Oxford or he's educated, but he, uh, in, mm. in America, he worked at it, Bain. It, yeah. <laughs> oh with no, Mitt Romney. Just, him and well, Mitt Romney were. Well, I, I Bain. think Netanyahu was actually a great partner, and I, I stand with. Uh, okay. <laughs> on the subject of, of BB speaking English, I yeah. make that joke because Israel's PR. There's always this debate in the community. That mm-hmm. Israel loses the PR war, it loses the PR battle. And I have this internal debate in my head where to the extent that Israel is constantly trying to appease the mm-hmm. Western world. I mean, obviously, Israel's been in this physically abusive relationship with its neighbors since mm-hmm. its inception, since its founding. But it now finds itself in an emotionally abusive relationship with the West, with its supposed yeah, allies who are constantly, you know, demanding that. Uh, we seek their approval, that Israel seeks its approval to be moral and just. We're, they try to say, look what we're doing. We're dropping pamphlets. We're dropping leaflets. We're sending warnings. We value human life. They're constantly asking for permission. And to the extent that Israel does that, I feel that Israel eventually just loses because it's almost like in the cancel culture space of apologizing to the mob for something you didn't really do wrong in the first place, where when you when you see that territory in a way, it's almost like there's a part of me that wants to say, Israel, just do what you have to do. Know you're moral and just in doing so. And don't ask for permission constantly because they don't want to give you that approval. The extent that Israel shows that it's just, it only upsets the world that is hostile towards it in the West. But do you have any sort of practical things you think Israel could do to improve its messaging, or do you think that would be constructive and actually helpful? Well, first, just let me acknowledge the point. And I think this incredible double standard that is, call it thinly veiled anti-Semitism or lowercase anti-Semitism infects everything from the BBC to the New York Times to Biden himself. Biden says we must protect this hospital. We must have a ceasefire. I find it insane that more Americans in Hollywood and in finance and banking who have parents who survived the Holocaust don't start from, we can't have a conversation, we can't make demands until they release hostages. They mm-hmm. took four-year-old girls hostage. So let's, let, let's not talk about anything else until... Salma Hayek and Julia Roberts on the red carpet of Cannes 10 years ago saying, bring our girls home from Boko Haram. Where the fuck are they now? <laughs> Where the fuck are they now? Mm-hmm. There's this double standard and, and there's this notion that, you know, even Elon Musk says, I would suggest that Israel be the, the kindest, display at extraordinary levels of kindness. We need a ceasefire. You protect the hospital. Here's the bottom line. Every nation, CNN, and far-left groups on campuses have all decided that the last Christians in the world should be Jews, that all of a sudden we're supposed to call on our better angels, that we're the ones that are supposed to be full of grace, mm-hmm. that, that everyone expects us to be the only remaining Christians in the world. When, when the Taliban came in or al-Qaeda came in and killed 2,600 or on a, a, a per capita basis, about 70 people in the U.S., we then went on to kill 400,000 people in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right? When, uh, I mean, the, the numbers here, it, it, where were all these people crying and looking for empathy for the Muslims killed in Syria, the hundreds of thousands the tens of thousands killed in Yemen. Where were they then? And all of a sudden, they're outraged. They're just outraged and have all this, all this empathy. And you can't find moral clarity in geopolitics. I think we have to acknowledge that you can have empathy for the Palestinians. You can, you can, you know, be not supportive of 
Israel. You can be anti-Israel and not anti-Semitic. I acknowledge that. What the argument I don't buy is that uh, you have to separate Hamas from Palestinians. And when I see a young woman who's been assaulted and is bleeding, being carted around, and I see Palestinians cheering her or cheering them, I'm like, is there really that much separation? Is there is, is that really when I see doctors shuttling hostages in between emergency rooms, not only are they uh, cognizant of these military command posts, but they're actually engaging in the hostage taking. I just find that the, 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 the hypocrisy here and the double standard is like I'm preaching to the choir here, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like uh, I, I, I feel like folks like you who have been. Um, more out front on this, and it comes at a cost. The majority of young people do not agree with our views, yeah. and I, I, I hear about it every day. I can't imagine how much you hear about it. It comes at a cost, well, the but thing it's that worth sh- it. Yeah, the thing that's always striking to me is, like, this shouldn't be controversial. It shouldn't be something so hard to explain. The fact that it's difficult and the fact that I, there's always this bittersweetness to when I get positive feedback about it, like, it's so obvious to a decent human being, even if, you know, forget understanding ethics at a sophisticated level of morality for this to be difficult for this to be an uphill battle is very very sad the idea of condemning anti-semitism publicly is somehow controversial in today's culture as opposed to you know racism homophobia sexism that is obvious we're all on board we're all good human beings of the world that can condemn that but the second anti-semitism comes up it faces this double standard and to me that is, I'm proud to speak out about it and I'm happy to, but the fact that the fact that it's considered brave to do so is a sad state of affairs for the Western Very world. weird. I don't recognize. I, I yeah. just had no idea. I just, I'm just absolutely flummoxed and kind of mm-hmm. rattled by what I just see as this pool or this depth of anti-Semitism that, that's the depth of the Mariana Trench that I just yeah. didn't know was there. I, and it seemed, yeah, wasn't expecting it, it. Michael, very excited to announce we have our very first sponsor for Ami's House Chutzpah Vegan Dumplings. Chutzpah plant based dumplings. They're kosher, they're high protein, and they're vegan. So if you're a religious Jew and you keep kosher, but you're also a wuss, Chutzpah plant based dumplings. Great for families. They mm. take 10 minutes to make. They're delicious. Bubby's dumplings. I don't think any religious Bubby in their right mind would make a vegan dumpling, but hey, it's 2023. <laughs> and this is a sister brother owned company. From the um, South. Yes, we, uh, we are trying to advertise only sister brother owned companies from the South. Crafted with barbecue glazed seitan and caramelized onions. Mm. Yummy. <laughs> so LA. So LA. <laughs> so they're available in retail. Check out your local kosher grocery store or go to eatchutzpah.com and use code Ami's House, A-M-I-S-H-O-U-S-E, for 15% off at eatchutzpah.com. You know, it, I, there's an instinct in me to say, well, it's low resolution to just throw around anti-Semitism at anything that I might find objectionable. Because historically, I do think in the community, like, mm-hmm. we can acknowledge that to throw around that term loosely at anybody, you know, to kick Whoopi Goldberg off the view for not knowing something is very different than a hateful neo-Nazi with a tiki torch. And you can't use the same label for both. So you have to think Agreed. about it. But like you said, the only rational, logical explanation for this ridiculous double standard of Israel having to defend itself and the dehumanization of Jews in Israel and around the world and the delegitimization of one state on one state only, the Jewish state, leaves you this, to this conclusion that there's this layer of anti-Semitism, uppercase or lowercase, that's going on here. 
What, what I find, so a couple of things. In terms of what's happening on campuses, it's rallying, but we tend to see the video clips of the most extreme examples. And as someone who's on the faculty at NYU, I do think it's not quite as bad as people think right now. I think the majority of people are taking a breath, trying to be thoughtful about it, um, don't, want, don't want to intimidate other students, and we see the worst of it because it'll go viral if you capture a really ugly moment on campus. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm much more forgiving of some 19-year-old that has idiotic views. If I had a phone and a camera following me around when I was 19 at UCLA, I'm sure it could have captured some really ugly shit that I said. Mm-hmm. The, the thing I find more disappointing is when all these very powerful people become apologists for Elon Musk. And they're like, we've, we've looked into his heart, and I don't think he's an actual anti-Semite. In my view as well... You are what you say and you do, and when you when you retweet and promote anti-Semitic tropes and, and conspiracy theory, congratulations, you're an anti-Semite. And just because you're a billionaire and you make a great fucking car and can land two rockets on two barges, that doesn't mean other billionaires get to give you a get-out-of-jail card free. And the standards for a 52-year-old man who has been blessed with what this individual has been blessed with should be much higher. It should be a much higher bar than some sophomore at Cornell. So the kids on campus, I think, are getting what I'd call unfair judgment, the unmasking, the doxing. I'm not sure. They should pay a price. If free speech turns into hate speech, I think they should be brought in front of student committees and they should either be suspended or expelled. If I, as a faculty member at NYU, started saying burn the blacks or gas the gays, I would be out the next day. I would be out the next day. Absolutely. And Tenured or not, it's this insane double standard for the type of hate. 100%. So there needs to be, I would call, more administrative action and leadership here. But I'm not as worried about that. I think this is part of, I don't want to call it growth, but kids will have a tendency to really push the boundaries of things. And I also do think the actual problem has been somewhat inflated for clicks. Mm -hmm. What I find more disappointing is how quiet many of our leaders have been on this. Their Their lack of, you know, they're worried about people not coming to their movie or they see it as politically incorrect, or it seems like the youngins feel feel have more sympathy for this side. So I'm going to be more quiet on this issue. And the fact that we let the most the wealthiest, arguably the most powerful person in the world, make these incredibly, in my opinion, disparaging comments, and then be unapologetic about it. Although I will give him this, he did apologize last night for those comments, and then have all of these billionaires wring their hands where they want to. They want to dox and create a list of the, the students at Harvard who were at this rally, but they seem to have looked into Elon Musk's ketamine heart and decided he's not an anti-Semite. So wait, you're a fan of Elon Musk? or I'm just, I'm just trying to figure this out. Um, well, here's the thing. He did go, well, one, how, right? What about him going to Israel and making the rounds and, and you know, bringing his, his platform and attention to He's cosplaying world leader. Uh-huh. <laughs> and by well, the way, he, he, he yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, and then he comes back. Oh God! I, I just well, he's been teasing Scott. He's been teasing the Jews a little bit. He teases us because he'll say things. You know, he'll be like, "I don't like the Jews. I yeah. love them." Yeah, you know, it's right. like, yeah. I think we could put all the the Palestinians and the Jews on Mars, and that's how we can solve the yeah, problem. Yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah. so we need to yeah. be an interplanetary yeah. species. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do an like idea. that. Make make this planet more fucking habitable, boss. <laughs> but uh, the impulsive nature—you just have no tolerance for that at his level, at his age, and at his sophistication to to know that his responsibility to not just be like, "Oopsie." Is probably not the best. Uh, I think a lot of this. I think a yeah. lot of this hate and divisiveness and tearing at the fabric of our society can be reverse engineered to mm-hmm. algorithms that encourage yeah. us to be really coarse and not mm-hmm. to 
not to give people the benefit of the doubt, to not to take gestures, not with the intent that they're given, but with an ability to take them to their worst place and then get back in people's faces. I think it, social media algorithm algorithms promote this so they can sell more Nissan ads, more Nespresso pods. And right. I, I think it tears at the fabric of our society. And I think he is literally social media is a sewer system. And I think since Elon mm. Musk took over Twitter, he's turned it into the sewage system of a sewer system. I think it's, he's done tremendous. I want to acknowledge, I think he's also done tremendous benefit for the, for, for the planet. Yeah, the EV race has been, has been electrified, if you will, by him. Right. But that doesn't mean we have to just accept everything. He, he should be held accountable for this other shit. I think this other shit is just not Well, Howard Stern style, we have Elon Musk calling in right now, and he wants to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you right. But I, I also think about a world pre-Elon on Twitter, and I, I, I shake about the idea of the far-left sort of Twitter that would try to censor and flag speech, especially in the, in the, in the environment that we have now where it's sort of everything is there. And I don't know what's better. It's a double-edged sword because, like you said, it creates this cesspool. But beforehand, to imagine the amount of things that maybe not be able to be circulated in terms of, I don't know, God forbid, there would be a bias that wouldn't allow the sharing of the atrocities that we saw. Um, but what what can you 7th. say? What can you say now? What couldn't yeah. you say on Twitter before? Before Elon Musk, I remember during like everything during COVID when there were things that were being talked about that. Um, or that the anti- uh, anti-vax. Not just anti-vax, but any any kind of question or any kind of uh, discussion just was met mm-hmm. with this suspicion on Twitter. I think it was like the lab theory and stuff like that that eventually became more plausible. Yeah. Yeah. Being talked to, there was this culture of uh, uh, there was clearly a. Uh, I mean, I remember even at one point Rogan had had executives at Twitter to try to discuss political bias on Twitter, but it it seemed to be part of the Silicon Valley more left of center, and there was regulation of mm-hmm. of uh, certain ideas that were more right of center on Twitter. That that. Do you not agree with that? Well, you're you're talking to someone who pulled their podcast off of Spotify because of Joe Rogan. Uh-huh. Um, Oops. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, forget uh, like anti-vax. I mean, I mean anything that was like about sort of discussing a certain thing that wasn't. It seemed I, to be more dogmatic. I, yeah. I, I could see a world where um, where on Twitter you wouldn't be able to share any of the October seventh images or videos, and and that would have yeah. sort of just been inaccessible for anyone who wanted to understand what happened that day. I'm with you, by the way, generally, but... So, look, first off, the argument, people immediately go to First Amendment free speech, and Mm -hmm. I feel like the entire argument has uh, a false context, and that is Twitter has no obligation, fidelity to free speech or the First Amendment. Agreed. If you want free speech and total First Amendment in the Wild West, go to 4chan and 8chan. Mm -hmm. You can say anything, you can do anything, you can sell anything, you can, you know, get a mail-order bride. There's, Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of... Really? There's just okay. crazy shit on, on there. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing. It's not the public square. The First Amendment says that the government should pass no law that inhibits free speech. And even that has limits. Twitter is a private company. And I do not, I think everyone has the rights, I think Elon has the rights to say these things. I have the right, and I've exercised my right, uh, not to post on Twitter any longer. Disney has the right to stop advertising. And yesterday at the DealBook conference, he told them to go fuck themselves and said the world will judge them based on them stopping advertising. And it's like, well, b- well, boss, 499 of the Fortune 500 aren't advertising on my podcast. Are they blackmailing them? Are they blackmailing me? Is the world going to hold them accountable? It's just such a, yeah. it's just such bullshit. And here's the bottom line: Twitter, the, he owns it. He has the right to put whatever content he wants on there as long as it doesn't incite violence. At the same time, a guy as wealthy as him has some obligation to the Commonwealth, I would think. I think he's been pretty blessed and should have algorithms that say when you are promoting 
information around health or the elections or, or, anti, or, or hate speech, and you're elevating it to create more and more controversies such that you get more clicks and sell more ads, do you have the legal right to do it? Yeah. Is it mm -hmm. good for America? No. Should we expect more from you? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, the difference between an opinion and a principle is willing to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I sold my Tesla, which I loved. It's a great car. I'm no longer posting on Twitter, which is really hard for me because I'm addicted to Twitter. I absolutely <laughs> loved it, and I love, I'm love. i desperate for the affirmation of strangers. You're on I, Truth Social exclusively now? Is that it? That's it. That's it. Rumble. Um, Rumble and Truth that, Social. Rumble and, you know, and, of course, Grindr. But it's the greatest, much better than... <laughs> Better than Twitter. Come to Truth Social. We got <laughs> Professor Scott Galloway posting beautiful stuff on Truth Social. Um, listen, I agree with the distinction you're making, obviously, in in free speech as uh, from the government versus in the private sector. And I, I do think, though, the culture of looking at ideas in the marketplace of ideas as certain ideas are are so harmful or so violent mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, the erosion of free speech as a principle uh, by law, I think, does start in the culture. So it's important mm -hmm. to just keep an eye on it and keep a emphasis on creating a culture where a marketplace of ideas is is a paramount and should be put forth as this uh, uh, principle of we respect uh, the, the idea that we can debate things, even ideas that we find objectionable. More speech is generally better. Sunlight's the best disinfectant. These things kind of start at the cultural level before you find yourself in a situation where we're willing to actually ban speech at the government level. So I, I'm not saying that they're the same, and I agree that Twitter has the right to do whatever it wants to do. I, I don't take the PragerU approach of needing to sue social media tech giants yeah. because it's a free speech issue. I, I, I would agree legally on that principle. But if you, yeah. if you, if you held to that, and mm -hmm. I, I think that's a defensible position. I own the company. I'm a free mm -hmm. speech absolutist. It's mm -hmm. going to be whatever goes, goes. I mean, right. there'll be some limits, but pretty much anything goes. Yeah. I think if you're consistent with that, I respect that. And and then advertisers or users can decide if that's the environment they want to hang out in. Right. The The issue I have is then he sues the Anti-Defamation League for signing a letter along with 199 other nonprofits saying, what you're doing here is bad. Would you please stop? And he singles out the ADL, strong association with Judaism and Jews in Israel, and decides to sue them. Yeah. When Media Matters says, okay, you are, uh, you are publishing content, advertiser content, next to swastikas, he sues them to shut them up. Mm -hmm. So quite frankly, Mr. Free Speech is fucking full of shit. Mm. And there, there just isn't any consistency around this ridiculous false flag of free speech when it comes to Mr. Musk and his actual behavior. He is very willing to try and silence people by suing them because he has the resources to sue people into oblivion. But at the same time, when he says really stupid things, mean things, hateful things, damaging things, and advertisers say, I'm out, mm -hmm. he decides it's a free speech issue. There's no consistency here. There's, no, there's absolutely no, no clarity here. And so... If somebody wants to have, I think 4chan and 8chan have the right to do that. It's vile, weird content. It's a strange mm -hmm. place. From an economic standpoint, just being purely a capitalist, the correlation between moderation and shareholder value is positive. The most moderated platform right now is the fastest growing and the most profitable, and that's TikTok. Mm -hmm. You could literally, if you're just being a capitalist, and let's talk about money, people don't want, people want moderation. People want an editor to say, okay, this is what makes it on here. This is what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, Twitter has become much less moderated. And this enterprise value over the last 12 months has gone from $45 billion, if you believe he paid a fair price to it, 
to now it's being valued at six billion. So at a minimum, it's a really stupid business strategy. He's a sweet guy. Okay, we can move on from Musk. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I hear you. Sorry about um, that. No, no, of turn. course, of course. We, we keep it open here. We Have you ever open. met him? Um, I, I co-hosted a conference that he spoke at. I didn't interview Awkward. him. Awkward. Okay, well. No, no, <laughs> but he's, he's, he has called me names on Twitter. He's called me an insufferable mm-hmm. numbskull. And he's actually reached out to me and asked for a meeting. He says he said oh. that I unfairly attack him, and I said I had no desire to meet with him. And then 48 hours later, I was kicked oh. off of Twitter. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, and by the way, I found out later that, that but I, I found out later that it probably wasn't him. It was probably just I got locked out oh. Um, oh. through some sort of. I don't think I loomed that large in his life right. where he took the time to kick me off of Twitter. Right, right, right. Oh, okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna find peace here if we can. You know, not before peace in the Middle East, but we can bring Scott and Elon together there for some go. kind of uh, two media go. personality solution. Um, in. Uh, I just I, I want to finish off on this uh, area that you sp- you speak a lot about you know in terms of the culture of advice culture that w- that's all over social media. There's mm-hmm. constantly um, I've heard Chris Williamson say in Modern Wisdom you know talking about the thing isn't doing the thing, reading about the thing isn't doing the thing, thinking mm-hmm. about the thing isn't doing the thing, dreaming about the thing isn't doing the thing. Do you think that like what can you say about the um, sort of pitfalls of people falling into advice culture where there's a success bias that happens where mm-hmm. when somebody becomes successful, makes a lot of money, does something impactful, everybody wants to come to them and seek their advice. And mm-hmm. do you think there's an issue with players who become coaches who not, not everyone who can play the game can coach and, mm-hmm. you know, not everyone necessarily can know exactly how they became successful. They only know maybe the principles that they applied that sort of helped along the way, but everybody's success story is slightly different. So what are the things that you could say we should watch out for with this culture of advice and how to make it and how to do it that, that we see all over social media. So first off, I'm guilty of that. I suffer from the Dunning-Kruger effect, and that is mm-hmm. because I made some money because I'm decent in one thing in the world of marketing, I immediately think, oh, I have insight into every topic. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to share my views on things because you know I have reach. You know what? I would, my advice to young people is I actually think there's a lot. You want to have a kitchen cabinet. And the wonderful thing about these platforms now is you can have Sam Harris on your shoulder. You can really get to know, you mentioned Chris Williams. I think he's great. Um, you can decide, I really want to get in better shape. I'm going to start listening to Dr. Huberman or Peter Atia, and I'm going to try and just get really good at getting in great shape. Mm-hmm. I can listen to Esther Perel and try and develop a healthier approach to relationships. I think everybody should have a group of people that serves as their sort of informal kitchen cabinet to guide them through stuff. But there's nothing getting around it. An action orientation, nothing nothing replaces an action orientation. And just as important as that action orientation, and now I'm preaching, is the willingness to endure rejection. And what I worry about with all of these platforms and generally just us consuming more media and having this kind of algorithmically, digitally uh, reasonable facsimile of real life where we think, oh, I'm not gambling on Coinbase or Robinhood. I'm learning about investing. Oh, I'm not engaging in actual friendship by being outside. I'm on Facebook or I'm on Discord or Reddit. Oh, I'm not taking a risk of going up to a strange woman at a social setting or in a bar. I'm just going to engage in porn. Mm -hmm. And I worry that there's an entire generation of young men who are sequestering from society because they have these low-risk, low-barrier entries into reasonable facsimiles of life that reduce their risk tolerance. 
And as a result, they're not willing to leave the house. They're not willing to approach strangers. They're not willing to email strangers about a potential job. They're not willing to walk into a store up the street and ask for a job application. They're not willing to try and find a group of friends to do shit with. And, and also, especially among young men, they feel rejected online in terms of online dating, where women all want the same guy. So the top 10% get 80% of the interest. And I worry that um, a lot of men aren't developing the, the callus. I mean, Avi, mm-hmm. I mean, what you have as a stand-up, you have the key to success. And it may not be in comedy. You have developed the ability to endure rejection. You can't get up on open mic night and not have the ability to endure rejection and humiliation. And here's the thing. If you want to score above your weight class economically, professionally, and romantically, you have to get out a big spoon and be willing to eat shit. Because show me someone show me someone with a better job than they deserve. Show me someone with more wealth than they deserve. Show me someone with a more a more interesting, higher character, hotter mate than they are. And I'm going to show you someone who's been rejected by a shit ton of people to get to that job, to get to that economic security, to get to that wonderful mate. And young men aren't developing that that endurance. They aren't developing those calluses. Yeah, I I thought about this last night. Actually, this week I I headlined at a a club in New York City and I had arrived in New York City from L.A. diving deep into the stand-up comedy scene. So there was kind of a moment that I was kind of trying to soak up and relish in a little bit but i thought about and you met you started this episode talking about uh all you know how i'm rising up on social media and things are everywhere and i realized that you know you don't want success too early either because you will find yourself in a very chaotic place all that rejection over time builds a foundation if you look at it the right way you're learning what doesn't work what does work and even the the little successes that may disappoint you you know you may think you've arrived at something and something will feel a certain way and then it doesn't and you're like, well, I thought it was supposed to be like this. It didn't, you know, I went viral, but I, I didn't get the following to follow that. But all of those things along the way, I find, build this very rock solid foundation that when real significant success or moving the needle significantly forward does happen, you're, you're armed and equipped for it. You have calluses, you have, you know, the scars to prove it. And it puts you in a much better position to have su- sustained success. You don't want momentary success. So. I did. It, it did occur to me last night that, like, I'm glad in a way. You're grateful for. I mean, it's funny because you can't fail indefinitely because then you're failing indefinitely. But the the micro successes, the micro failures along the way, do build a, a solid foundation. And I think a lot of people miss that. That as long as you make a distinction between practices and principles, where the principles are you, you're showing up every day, you're doing mm-hmm. what's required, and you're putting it in, and you're paying attention. Over the long run, you can have a sustained success, hopefully, over time. And that's why it's hard to pinpoint exactly what you did. But maybe there's something to be said about the principles that you apply. You know? And also, not only do you develop the skills, it's just so much more rewarding mm-hmm. when it's taken some time to get to the peak. Romantic comedies are two hours and not 20 minutes for a reason. Right. I had a lot of very early success, very fast. By the time I was 34, I was you know, a millionaire, at least on paper. I had started successful e-commerce companies. I was invited to Davos. All these masters of the universe wanted to meet me because supposedly I knew something about the internet. <laughs> and then the next 10, 15, 10 years were really hard for me. I had a company, my company I started went bankrupt. I got divorced. The great financial recession hit at exactly the right time just as I started having kids. And I was really financially strained or less financially well off than I thought I was going to be at a young age, given I was kind of a master of the universe in my early 30s. Mm. And having sort of clawed back 
Cloud back somewhere. I have I've had a lot of blessings, a lot of wind in my back. But now that I'm in a position again where I have some currency, some influence, some success, some economic security, quite frankly, it's just so much more rewarding because I know how hard it is. Mm -hmm. And I think the first time I had success, I wanted to credit my grit and my character, but I didn't acknowledge how much luck and the market had played in it. I got coming out of business school in the 90s in the Bay Area, you just got swept up in internet fever and you just kind of slipped and fell on tens of millions of dollars in venture capital. And a lot of my success was was illusory, and I didn't realize it. And so now that I am in a good place, you know, having built something with somebody, having good kids, having, you know, the, the accoutrements of economic success, it's just really rewarding now. And it Does it feel that way, too, with a public profile that's, like, becoming more well-known, like, later in life in your career? Because even at that time, I, I feel like now you're you're on a bigger platforms and are broadcast mm-hmm. to more people. Like, people talk about fame. Mm-hmm. So loosely speaking, but getting it a little later, how, do you feel like that's been a benefit? Are you grateful it didn't happen earlier? Um, I had some of it very early. I was on the cover of things like Inc. Magazine, not a lot of fame, but um, it's, I have, I would say I have just the right amount of fame. Mm-hmm. And that is, I don't get bothered. I can still feel sort of anonymous, but on a regular basis, people come up to me and are really nice to me mm-hmm. and say nice things. And it's wonderful. And I meet really nice people strangers on the street and I, I just it's this incredibly rewarding to have someone come up to you and be nice to you and say they enjoy your work i'm sure you're starting to get that now or maybe you've been bit. getting it for a while but i love it mm-hmm. and i'm also uh you know i don't know if it's insecure played with the wrong toys or the right toys but it means a lot to me it makes me feel good about myself and but at the same time i don't have enough fame where you know, I don't feel like I can go anywhere. I, you know, I have just, I have just enough. I wouldn't want any more. Well, once we have, hear this podcast, got just you wait. Just wait, right? Here it comes. Lines out the door. Here it comes. <laughs> but a decent algorithm for happiness in a capitalist society, I, I wrote a book on happiness, is to be rich and anonymous. Yeah. Because there is a, there is a downside to a certain amount of fame. I get attacked a lot on Twitter. There's, a, there's an industrial complex and incentives, and probably some of it's healthy in bringing down someone, finding the soft tissue in their argument, embarrassing them, highlighting what an idiot they are. I said on Bill Maher that we should show more forgiveness to people from COVID, whether they were too zealous about lockdowns or not zealous enough, that none of us knew really what was going on and we should bring forgiveness. And I just got dragged on the internet for by the anti-vaxxers for, you know, no forgiveness, straight to hell for you. You ruin people's lives with your overzealous lockdowns. And that shit is like, it rattles you when literally hundreds of people start sending you vile DMs and emails. and Yeah, and that's new to me. I've gotten that, too, for other things in the past month, for sure. It, <laughs> it, it, you know, Especially there's people I followed who I, I thought would imagine. one way, and then I'm like, yo. Yeah, this is, no. yeah I, and, can, I and can imagine. <laughs> so it, that stuff rattles you, um, mm-hmm. and, but that's part of it. I can't imagine what it's like for really famous people. I have some friends who are you know, legitimately famous, and... Mm-hmm. You know, a couple of times I was in L.A. and I was we were going to Halloween parties and a couple of my friends come come with me and they're like, no, there'll be photographers there and I don't want to drink and I don't want them to see me. Yeah. Another friend of mine hosts a TV show and we were in Vegas together and he's like, I can't go to be seen at a casino. I mean, it's just there really is a downside to it. But I'm I have agoraphobic. Just, yeah, I have just the right amount of fame. People are okay. super nice to me online. Less nice. But that's okay. I can I can deal with that. It's worth it. But online is like the road rage of the digital world. People are just meaner behind yeah, the wheel the of their computers. We're, people's um, worst instincts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
Professor, thank you for shedding light and shedding your ideas and for making the time. And I appreciate the kind words and uh, the support that you're showing me on uh, social media and sharing my work. And I really appreciate the kind words. And just thanks for taking the time to being with us uh, here at Ami's house. Yeah. Thank you, Ami. And I, I just want to say as a young man, four kids uh, in what feels like a healthy relationship, taking risks, doing something that is really fucking hard and what you do is hard and doing well at it and providing for your family and also having the time to fight for other people that, you know, in causes you believe in. That's exactly what it means to be a man. And like I said, that's why I'm here. I really appreciate what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Okay, I'm going to flip the table now. What I'm a nice guy. <laughs> Masculinity with Scott Galloway. Thank you so much. You can follow Scott Galloway in the Prof G podcast and Pivot with Kara Swisher. Thank you, Scott Galloway, for being with us. Uh, stay tuned for more. Thanks so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Ami. <laughs>